Hello, NAFI members and flight instructors. This is John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors, and I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of the NAFI More Right Rudder Podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. And uh, today, I'm happy to say that uh, we do have a sponsor of this episode, and they're a brand new friend of the Naffy family, and this is Flying Eyes. Now, if you're not familiar with Flying Eyes, they make sunglasses, incredible sunglasses. Um, I will admit they're a, a newer brand uh, to me, but I had the pleasure to meet the team uh, at AirVenture, and I got to try on some of their uh, wares. And I have to tell you, they are some of the most comfortable sunglasses I think I've ever put on my head. Um, what makes them so good is they're very, very lightweight, but also they're very thin uh, for the uh, the piece that kind of goes by your ears. And so they're designed so that you can wear them with a headset and not hurt your head. So, um, you know, we know that uh, so many of these headset companies design them so that they don't hurt your head, but they don't necessarily design them with sunglasses in mind. So here's sunglasses designed with a headset in mind. Um, And I'm happy to say that if you uh, go to their website, flyingeyesoptics.com, you can check out their wares. You can even get prescription sunglasses. And if you use the code NAFI, N-A-F-I, when you go and check out, you'll get 10% off. And uh, the cooler thing about it is is that uh, NAFI also gets a little bit uh, of recognition from uh, from Flying Eyes. So you're helping yourself. You're help- helping NAFI and your association. And it's a win, win, win for all of us. So... Thank you for Flying Eyes. This is just the tip of the iceberg of things that we intend to do with them, and uh, we welcome them to the family, of course. So without further ado, we'll get to uh, today's presentation. Now, we're excited about this, too, because it is the first in a series of videos slash audio productions that uh, came out of AirVenture at our Professional Development Center, or PDC. Now, if you don't know, this is the big tent that we have at the air show every year, and uh, we use it as our educational center. We had 32 presentations there this week, or this year, during the week of AirVenture, and boy, oh boy, was it great. I, I cannot thank all of the presenters enough for the time and effort that they put into it, the professionalism that they all had, and just the amazing effort and work um, that, uh, that they showed by putting these things on the, the presentations were absolutely amazing. And it's, it's humbling that instructors like them and instructors like you put the time into, uh, into doing things that, uh, contribute to the aviation and instructor industry. So thank you so much to each and every one of them. And so we recorded a bunch of these and uh, this is the first one. Now, this is 10 things every CFI should know. And it was done by Andy Dow, who is a six-time NAFI master instructor and a professor, professor of aviation at Quincy University. And with him was Brian Schiff, who's, a, uh, of course, a NAFI board member. He's also a major airline captain, um, obviously a member of the Schiff family, which everybody, uh, a lot of people know, and uh, he's done a lot in his own right, too. Um, and so, yeah, the Brian and Andy, they talk about uh, just experiences and wisdom they've gained from time that they've spent as flight instructors and 
even they say you don't necessarily have to be a CFI to appreciate these lessons. So anyways, I hope that uh, this is the the first of many that you'll listen to. They are all recorded from um, a live audience. So I apologize a little bit for the audio not always being as polished as it could be, but the information is still really good and uh, maybe you'll feel like you're at our venture too. So without further ado, 10 questions or 10 things every CFI should know. We're ready to kick it off. We got the top yep. 10 things that all flight instructors should know. Yep. So like Bob said, I am uh, from Quincy, Illinois. I'm a designated examiner. I've been examining for about five years. Um, I've been a flight instructor for 19 years, so so next year is going to be my 20th year flight instructing. I'm currently an active flight instructor. I teach at uh, Quincy University, which is a small private Catholic university where I'm from, and help develop that program. So, And that program just celebrated its 20th year this year, so... Excited to be almost uh, the whole entire way through. So that's awesome. Yeah, I've uh, been teaching for about thirty-five-ish years, a flight instructor actively for thirty-five years. Been a DPE, been a—I uh, don't know—I've done flying a bunch of different kinds of airplanes. It doesn't matter once you get like so much experience, as our guy with fifty years would know. You start actually plateauing and going downhill and learning more from your students at that point. But uh, on the side, I fly for American Airlines. I fly uh, the A320. Actually, I watch the Airbus fly itself around, and, and it does a beautiful job. <laughs> In any event, my passion is with general aviation. Love coming out here. Glad to be at Oshkosh. And let's talk about being an instructor. All right. You can start. Good. You got number one. All right. So right arrow. Right arrow. So uh, the first thing I want to talk about is endorsements. You know, as a CFI, it's our responsibility to give the proper endorsements, um, and I'll give you kind of a little bit of, of my experience from it as a flight instructor and also as a designated pilot examiner. Oops, I think I went backwards. Okay. No. The first thing you should know is to know which buttons to push before you start pushing buttons. There right? we go. So, um, obviously, um, we, we do our endorsements. There's endorsements uh, pre-written for us in the back of our logbook. So I'm going to talk about kind of making sure we're meeting the record requirements, um, what endorsements are required for the check right, of course, the do's and don'ts, and then some uh, experience that I've had as far as endorsements goes. So uh, the first thing we probably know is that some of the logbooks our students have don't have the proper endorsements, you know. Uh, they might be missing a specific regulation. Uh, they might be um, outdated. You know, a big thing that changed within the last 10 years of, uh, for the logbook industry was uh, sign-off going from 60 days to two calendar months. So a lot of these older logbooks have that 60-day endorsement. So we need to make sure that it is appropriate to um, what the FA requires as far as all of our legal documents. And of course, the best thing to go to is the advisory circular. So this is going to be the CFI's guide as far as how to endorse uh, student and our students for checkride. So the current version is 6165 Hotel, and it contains everything that we need to go. So sometimes when you're signing a student off for a checkride, um, what I've learned is 
those pre-made endorsements in logbook are, are not enough. You know, sometimes they're missing depending on company to company. Does anybody have a favorite logbook company that they like to use? Well, you like the digital version? Yeah, they're all there. Does anybody have a paper one? No. Nope. I'm a big fan of the Glime logbook myself. I think it's the best one tailored for students and everything. So, but in this guide, it's really cool. You know, it has everything uh, tailored specifically for each certificate. So it's right there in front of us if we need to use it. Um, I remember signing off a check ride in my um, a designated examiner that I was using for my students. He goes, you know, do you know exactly what you're signing? Uh, have you ever read that regulation? So that's something that I wanted to bring out because since we're endorsing our students, it's so important for us to understand the regulations that we're actually signing them off. What exactly are the requirements? That kind of thing. So um, as far as my experience goes, so I was a, a brand new instructor. Um, I'd just taken over a Part 141 school. And so we had our students going on, on across country. So you have this pre-filled out logbook, you know. I certify so-and-so has met the requirements to make solo flights in here. And then we have this limitation section. So as a brand new flight instructor, I don't know what to put down. What do I put down? So what I did is I looked in my logbook, pretty much copied exactly what my flight instructor did, put it down for our students. I didn't really understand because I wanted to just talk about the limitation section because you know we we every student should be different. You know I was signing the exact same seven knot crosswind component. I was doing a fifteen knot headwind. Um, 3,000 foot ceilings, but every student that we actually have as flight instructors are going to be a little bit different, you know. Some of them we are a little bit more cautious, as we know. Some of them are a little bit more braver and rambunctious, where we want to put really low minimums for them. Um, but so when I was in charge of the flight school, um, we had our canned cross countries. We always went to airport A, airport B, back home to airport, the starting point. So one time, uh, we we did a, did a student cross country. This was from another flight instructor. Um, they did the same can cross country, except for the winds at the airport were like a 15 knot crosswind, and it exceeded the seven knot crosswind component that we had for our school's limitations that we would set forth in there. You know, sometimes when we're a flight instructor, we just sign this dotted line and it gives us our students privileges to do whatever for 90 days or so. But it's really important that we let our students know what their limitations are. And so unfortunately when the student landed at one of the airports with a 15 knot crosswind, they ran off the runway, hit a runway light, kind of banged up the wheel pant and stuff. And so that just really, um, you know, brought, uh, basically opened up my eyes as a one-year brand-new flight instructor that this is so important. And I didn't know if that happened to anybody else or anybody else has experience with limitations. But it's something that, that we as flight instructors need to let our students know what their limitations are and maybe actually even talk to them. What do you think your limitations should be? Let's have a discussion about this. Um, so this is kind of my first point. This is what I wanted to bring up is, you know, just have an open discussion with your students what limitations are. Um, make sure when they're doing their, their, you know, their crosswing landings that it's not exceeding any tolerances that you set forth with them. Did you have a question real quick? Yeah, 
Would it be wise to maybe have them initial that limitation section? Well, you can you can always that do that issue? as a flight instructor. So he goes, should you have your students actually initial it? Absolutely. As a flight instructor, we can require more. This is just the bare minimums. I mean, we could write a whole entire book out for their limitations that says instead of limitations, just say, see, you know, this uh, separate document that maybe you have pasted in your logbook. So this is just what is required at a minimum. No student, so he goes, one limitation he puts on there is no student pilot touch and go. So, yep, that is uh, something that any flight instructor could do. Um, we know that this solo endorsement is valid for how many days? 90. You can, you can make it shorter if you want to. If you want just your student to solo just that day, you can put that on the limitation. So we can do anything as flight instructors. So we can put any anyone on. And like I said, each student's probably going to be a little bit different. So I, I also sometimes put, I authorize them for a supervised solo for the first couple solos yeah. uh, where I want to be there, I want to evaluate the weather, we talk about it. And so I okay them for supervised solo before it's unlimited. Absolutely. Yeah. You look at that solo endorsement before a check ride. I had a DPE the other day that said, the wind is going to be gusting above that solo limitation, so I can't give this young man his check ride unless you give me a different endorsement. So um, now you're going to get, uh, I'm not the official know-it-all DPE. Like I said, there's a lot of DPEs that are That's not what you told me. a little bit more expensive. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> but so in my eyes, they're doing a private pilot check ride. They're no longer a student. So they are PAC. They will make their decisions. So... Some examiners could have those harsher limitations, but if the wind is literally gusting 30 knots and the student says, let's go flying, we'll hop in the airplane and maybe get to the end of the runway, and then I'll tell them, you, you busted your check ride. But um, that is going to be up to the student. So we as examiners should not be making decisions during a check ride. So the student has to make all the decisions. You know, That's what they're there for. Yeah, but that's the whole entire thing. As an examiner, we actually have to look at all those cross questions, make sure they have their pre-solo knowledge test, make sure that when they did their solo time, it was within that 90-day time. Because if we caught some that, hey, you did the solo cross-country, you weren't even properly endorsed for it. So, yeah, there's all those things that we look at. Well, I'll let you go ahead and do number two. So uh, the number two is to acknowledge that you're not perfect. I think some of us, as soon as we got our, I wish I knew half as much now as I thought I knew when I got my CFI, but I've learned just how little I do know. And teaching is where we really do start learning. So I think understanding that you're not perfect and knowing that it's okay to say I don't know, I think will improve your credibility. I shouldn't say I think, I know. Will improve your credibility with uh, students. So when, you, when you're asked a question, don't be afraid to say, you know, that's a, very good question, and I, I, I think I know the answer, but I want to get your complete answer or just say, I'm going to get back to you on that, but then have the integrity to follow up and, and, and make that a really hard rule. You say you're going to follow up, do it. I have had a lot of positive comments and letters at schools for saying, I don't know, but I'm going to get you the answer in a day or two. They get the accurate answer with sources, and, and I know a lot of instructors of what, you know, we're sitting there teaching you're, you're hearing some other instructors maybe teaching in another classroom or at an adjacent table. 
<clears throat> and you hear them BS their way through an answer to a question, and you're just like, uh, that would have come off so much better, and the student would be better for it if you were humble enough to say, I don't know, but I'm going to get you an answer. And I just think that's one of the top things that I've heard even some of the most <clears throat> uh, experienced pilots. And even our 50-year-old instructor, I'm sure, gets a question every now and then. Uh, and by 50 years old, I mean 50 years of CFI. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Get, I'll get back to you with the answer. I think that's, that's one of the, uh, the really good ones. Mine will get longer in time. All right. So the practical application of flight training is what I decided to be the third one here. So what do I mean by that? So when we were CFIs, we learned in the fundamentals of instruction characteristics of learning. So learning has to be purposeful. There has to be a purpose for learning to actually occur. Learning it can also be as a result of experience, right? You, you uh, touch an oven when it's hot, you learn that that oven's hot, and let's not do it again. We do that by experience. Learning is multifaceted. We use a different variety of senses, ways for us to learn as students and flight instructors. And, of course, learning is an active process. So, you know, we know that we can't know every single thing there is to know about education, flying, all that kind of stuff. So it's an ongoing learning process. So... How can we do that with students? So what I mean is, um, so the practical application. So the cool thing is that we as flight instructors, we get to read it in books, and we actually get to apply it in the learning experience. So why do I mean pre-flight? You know, why do I have this up here? I mean, we were all students. We, we all went through the 250 hours or a little bit less for training if you're part 141. And we had a pre-flight that gosh darn airplane every single time while the flight instructor was sitting inside in the air conditioner or the heat. And when I become a flight instructor, oh my goodness, I'm going to sit there and wait till my student gets done, that kind of stuff. So, you know, when I was a flight instructor, brand new flight instructor, that's what I did, you know. It's like, oh, just come and get me. But that really didn't really help my students out very much. Um, so, you know, we guide them maybe the first couple times how to do this pre-flight inspection. And then we just let them go. Go ahead and do it. But over the years, what I've learned is that we are missing out a really great teaching opportunity because, you know, what does the student look for? We just told them, we just showed them two or three times how to do a pre-flight. Now they're just doing it on their own. How do they know if something's broken or looks bad? Sometimes you have a student that can overlook stuff. So as a flight instructor, one of the things that I've actually done is um, uh, kind of uh, – cheat them a little bit. So I'll, I'll actually take out the airworthiness certificate, put it in my pocket before the flight. Did they see their document? It's a learning experience. This is the things that we need to do. Or you just put, just go to the shop, get a little bit of hydraulic fluid and put it right there by the tire or splash it on the brakes. Take out a screw, you know, something like that. That's not going to be serious. I put post-it notes in obscure places on the airplane. Yeah, that's probably this, the safer this idea. Is, this is broken, and, and I know how many I put on there. I want to see that many come back. Yeah, yeah, but the but the pre-flight inspection is something we as CFIs can really um, you know advance or, or help our students because, like I said, they don't really know what they're looking for. They're just making sure the oil tires look good, that kind of stuff. So kind of do some surprise, you know, maybe switch POHs or switch airworthiness certificates out of the airplanes, that kind of stuff. 
Plus, it's a, it's a great opportunity to teach systems as you walk around the airplane and point things Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then something that is uh, that I'm noticing on on check rides, conducting check rides, is one of the requirements is for the applicant on their commercial, their instrument, their their um, uh, private pilot to actually create and simulate filing a VFR flight plan. So I asked to my applicants, "Have you? How many of you have actually filed a VFR flight plan before?" And I usually get, "I've never done it." We just use, uh, we just uh, talk on the radio, get flight falling. So the thing that I'm seeing, I'm noticing in the, the new training world right now is that CFIs aren't really doing the flight plan. You know, it's a lot, it's easy because we have four flight. Four flight's just pushing a button and it does that for us. But during a check ride, during the process, we, we need to go back to the basics and teach them just how to just basically fill out this form. ForeFlight does this automatically, but we really need to enhance our training and actually go and file a flight plan, actually open up a flight plan. And one of the things I, I'll add to that is that when I tell a student, okay, or even a pilot getting a flight review, do you file flight plans? Well, my question is, only file a flight plan if you were to have a, a crash landing or an off-airport landing and you want someone to come looking for you. If you don't, then don't file a flight plan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so not only do we have the old basic FAA domestic flight plan, but we have the new international flight plan. So it has a lot more features. Of course, the AIM in that back of the, the far AIM book is going to tell us in detail how to fill out this form for us if you don't know anything about it. But I encourage everybody to actually file flight plans, go through that process when you're training your students because they're not going to know how to do it at all unless you show them. It's once again, tra training is as, as a result of an experience. Did you have a question, sir? Exactly, yep. You have to do the international when planning. Um, his question was, do you do the old-fashioned? Well, you know, as far as us, as far as teaching, I think it's a really great form to go back to the basics. Um, believe it or not, you're still tested on this on the private pilot knowledge exam. I think they're going to transfer over to the domestic here or the international later on. But, uh, you know, the main point is just to actually have our students do this process. The next thing is talking with flight service stations. So. I asked my students or applicants for check rides, how many of you actually talked to a flight service station or, you know, if we get in trouble up in the air, you know, how, how would we get assistance on weather or anything like that? And they're like, well, just call, you know, air route traffic control. Well, that, they actually might be able to help you a little bit with weather, but sometimes they're busy, especially if we're flying in the Chicago airspace. They're going to be like, we don't have time for you, that kind of stuff, or just not answer you. So actually, you know, the, my whole entire point of the, of the practical application is actually do. Do the things that are a little bit stubborn that we as CFIs, uh, we don't want to take the time to do that. Just, you know, go that extra effort, go that extra mile. Because if you don't teach your, uh, your applicants or your students to actually do these things, when they become CFIs, they're not going to do that to their students, and that chain's going to be broken. And then performing a VOR inspection. I get this all the time on my uh, instrument check rides and even double eye check rides. So, I, you know, how do you perform a VOR inspection? Well, they can tell me, but they've never done it before. What's a VOR? Yeah, I don't know. 
<laughs> it's still required, believe it or not, yeah. in some airplanes. But, yeah, I remember there uh, during a flight instructor social media page, there was a CFI who actually busted his checkride, and he was trying to um, basically seek, seek redemption from uh, a flight instructor group. And he goes, I can't believe the designated examiner, he failed me because I didn't know how to do a, a VOR inspection, and I'm a CFII. It's not supposed to be tested. And every CFI on there was like, are you kidding me? You don't know how to do a VOR inspection? You want to go for your double I? So, you know, instead of just reading it out of the book, let's actually perform it. Let's actually have a student do Even if it got tested two days ago, hey, let's do it again. The more practice they have, the better they're going to be at it. And this is something, and I don't mean to step on this, but I just want to add one more thing to what Andy just said. For those of you that are training new CFIs or well, let's do it this way. Training an advanced CFI rating, double I or MEI. What questions can the deep, can the examiner and inspector ask of, out of the ACS? <laughs> the whole thing. They can ask private questions. It's, there's no not fair. We're supposed to be the pros from Dover. That's right. Yep, on each page of the ACS, it gives the references, and usually sometimes it just says far aim, so I can ask the whole entire thing if I wanted to. Name, date, place, and bearing error. <laughs> so there, next up is you. All right. So th also number four, there's, you can be a good CFI or you could be a bad CFI. Show of hands, who's a good CFI? Oh, he says I'll get back with you uh, on the VOR inspections. Yeah, or can I phone a friend? <laughs> I'll have a lifeline. Yeah. So there are good CFIs and bad CFIs. Who are the worst in here? Show, show of hands. Who's the worst CFI in here? Yeah. I, right. <laughs> One. Humility is a good thing. Absolutely. There, there are good CFIs and bad CFIs, and you've seen them. You've seen your pet peeves when you see other CFIs do certain things. You're like, oh, my gosh. I'm not you've had instructors. As, as instructors, you've had instructors who are like, do things in a way. I'm never going to do it that way. Or you've had instructors tell you uh, ways that you really like. You've seen techniques that you really like. So we are a conglomeration of all those pilots we've flown with. On that note, go fly with more flight instructors. Get a flight review more often. Go up with other fellow flight instructors and see, hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? And we're going to kind of do that, and I'll have some tips and tricks at the end of this. Speaking of the end of this, stick around. There'll be a, a code. You get wings credit for being here. If you make it to the end, no yawning. I saw that. <laughs> And it's a valid point. Nothing more dangerous than a flight with two CFIs in the cockpit. It's like an airline flight with two captains. It does not go well. Uh, yeah, so, but, so definitely have a briefing about how you're going to handle that. But the most ineffective instructors are just commanders who issue orders. I mean, when you're teaching, there's a time to do that. And I'm not saying never just sit there and tell an a, a student what to do. And, but just telling them the whole time. To, to, to issue commands and have them follow commands won't work because one day you won't be there. The effective instructors analyze the needs of each student and modify their, their teaching methods accordingly. And there are some students that just don't learn. We know that, that, that there are different types of learners. And it might take a different technique. Uh, for example, you might have a student who just can't get away from the ground shyness or just not getting the flare altitude down pat. You don't have to just keep doing 50 touch and goes in the pattern. You can. But we have three runways, so the most crosswind component my students could get there was a 40 knot crosswind. 
So that's something you know I took advantage of when I was learning how to fly. I learned how to fly out of a one runway airport, one four three two. So we had a crosswind almost every single day. So sometimes, if you're based at a bigger airport with multiple runways, go out to a smaller airport, practice those crosswinds early and often for our students. The other thing is a Dutch roll. So how many of you guys have heard of a Dutch roll? Lots of you guys. Do you guys know how to perform a Dutch roll? So this is a big controversy. If you look on the Dutch roll on the internet, most of the time it will actually talk about a swept back airline. So I got a miniature airplane over here. So this is literally what I do, like the, the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth um, uh, maneuver or basically on the lessons. So I'll have our student go up and, and the whole entire point on the longitudinal, we're going to maintain the longitudinal axis. So uh, the goal is to bank the airplane about 20 degrees and actually go 40 degrees to a 20 degree bank to the right. And we're just going to do this multiple times. So we're always going to lead the turn with the rudder. And if you see the nose kind of vary side to side, we're not doing a Dutch roll correctly. And that's going to show the student how to do it. So the goal is to literally pivot right on that longitudinal axis and do it a bunch of times. You know, all it takes, I just have my students do this for about three minutes every single lesson over and over and over again until they have it mastered down. Then when I teach them steep turns, I do this before I even teach them steep turns, then they know how to apply that rudder properly right before the turn. But that Dutch roll is literally pivoting right on that longitudinal axis. If your nose is varying side to side, then you're doing it wrong. Then you need to either have more rudder or less rudder if they're applying too much. But if you guys don't know how to properly do it, just practice it by yourselves. Make sure you're mastering it down. And that's going to help the student immensely throughout their whole entire flight training. Yep, question? There's a microphone. Yeah, it's on. Just speak loud. Okay, the question is, I use the yaw string now probably more than I ever did the first 20 years I taught. But I put the yaw string on the windshield, and they're looking right at it. They don't have to look down for it. So have you guys ever heard of a yaw string? Basically a, a piece of string that you can tape, and that's what he was talking about. So it's another tool that we can use during flight instruction so that they don't have to worry about that. So that's I tried that idea. once, but I taped both ends of the string down. Don't do it that yeah. way. The, look, uh, gaffer's tape is great. I have it actually. It comes off and goes back on. You can peel it, and I stick it to my flight kit with a little piece of black yarn, and I can put it on and off as I, I will on all the time. Yes. I've never actually tried the yaw spring, so Brian. Uh, no, it's very accurate. I mean, if you're on the windshield, the glare shield, you know, on the windshield itself with a single engine propeller in front, uh, it's different than if you're powered off when powered on. So it's going to be different. Yeah. The Robinson helicopters, they only have yaw strings. So they don't, when you're teaching in a helicopter, that's why they have. But you power off, and even with a propeller whirling up there and you do a slip, you'll see the yaw string move, and you can, it, it, the rudder will move it. It works, works great, yeah? Yeah. All right. So number six, set the example. And this is, okay, have you ever, who is an instructor? Now, first of all, can, I, can we agree to be honest? Yeah? yeah? Okay. Who has ever said to a student, do as I say, not as I do? 
but watch this. <laughs> that is not something that should be in our repertoire. I've had instructors do that and say, okay, don't ever do this. And I've had students tell me, my instructor, he showed me a low pass, a low approach, uh, but he said never to do it. I said, well, that, you're setting a bad example. What you're doing is your actions speak louder than words. You're condoning the action. And a good example is Ben Franklin said is the best sermon. And, it, and this is something that one of my favorite instructors said to me once. It's not the uh, standards that you set. It's the standards that you accept. Even when you're flying with an instructor as a student, uh, if an instructor is texting while you're flying or you hear him looking at YouTube videos and they're looking at the other book, then you need to stop that. And even on a check ride, I would think that maybe an examiner might be checking you as, as your pilot command ability to stop them from doing that. Uh, but in any event, there are so many things that we do as pilots, but when you're setting, your students look up to you as, as an instructor. It's, it's, a, it's a relationship that if you think back to when you were learning how to fly, how you admired, you looked up to uh, your instructor, that when they did something, they're condoning it. And so if you set that standard of safety with them and show them how you, by your behavior, not by saying and doing different things, that will go along and far. And I think that's a very important, simple, yet very important characteristic to maintain. And at the end, I got some tips and tricks. And I'll, I'll talk longer. Don't, don't worry. All right. So the next thing I have on there is um, going beyond acronyms in aviation. So I think aviation, especially the, the education, is just full of acronyms. Um, so what do I mean by this? So we have our, you know, AVH acronym. We have the tomato flames, and we have the flaps acronym. Yes? We are saying flaps. I can tell you where, where you – I hate these things. I yeah. Using these acronyms because what I do is I have a checklist. If you're doing it on the ground, you should do the checklist on the ground and – do the actual read the actual orders because the FAA orders for fuses hey, say not hey, to have. This is what I'm getting to in my presentation, sir. <laughs> do you, do you, if you want to come up here and teach it, that's fine. They are not right. Yeah. But I can tell you that because on the helicopter, I noticed that, that <laughs> the fuses you have to have one complete spare set, but they're not within pilot's reach. Yep. And they have to be within pilot's reach. Yep. All right. So he's an advocate of going beyond acronyms. So. So, anyways, um, so when when I do check rides, so you know these are great teaching tools for our students. This is to help them remember the things that are required. But this can either help or hurt that student, and especially an applicant during a check ride. Um, so, for example. Um, let's see here. I was doing a check ride uh, the other day, and um, somebody was trying to do tomato flames. And um, uh, during their check ride, they called the, the M uh, magnetos that you needed to have. Uh, one of the A's was an attitude indicator. So then when I followed up questions, you know, so I'm like, so what if one magneto is, is bad? Can we still go find it? He goes, nope. Uh, I, I think you can just placard it inoperative and deactivate it. And then we can still fly. So the, the problem of it is, is, you know, these acronyms are great, but we really um, need to show the students in the regulations where they're at. We need to go beyond just that acronym and make sure that they understand it. 
Um, so one thing that, that I like to ask during my check rides is we have obviously the AVH acronym. Um, some private pilot acronyms think that the VOR inspection is required for private pilot type of thing, but um, we go to the static system inspection. So I always ask as an examiner, I go, so anyway, so we look at our logbooks um, and we notice that the pedostatic system inspection hasn't been done in three years. Can we go flying? What say you? Yeah, but do you know how many people say, nope, that's gonna ground the airplane, we're going to need a, a special flight permit from it. You know, for those of you who said, absolutely, it's required for VFR, that's because they're teaching the regulations. So, 91411, you know, does anybody know this? If you're, if you're a flight instructor, this is something that you want to show your students word for word on. So the altimeter system, it says that the very first sentence, no person may operate uh, an airplane or helicopter in controlled airspace under IFR unless, and it's basically given that inspection. So a lot of students that I'm seeing doing these tests for, for check rights for the private pilot just think that if that inspection is not done, that means that your altimeter will not work that your airspeed indicator doesn't work, and those are part of tomato flames, so they're like, nope, we can't go flying. Did you have a question? Heck yeah. As long as your transponder has been tested and inspected, right? We're just talking about the altimeter. That's it. So it's just an encoder that they're they're messing with to adjust and stuff for your transponder. But absolutely, you know, um, I think in the flight training world, for those of you who work at a big flight school or even a small flight school, we just do those acronyms of aviates, you know, and as long as a student meets, as long as the airplane meets it. But as an examiner, it really opened up my eyes because I get to fly airplanes that are six years old with duct tape all over them that haven't had this inspection done for years. And I'm like, oh boy, I don't know if we can fly. Looking at the regulations, absolutely, we can fly from it. So, yes. The 300 foot off, are you talking about like when you... Um, the ATC is gonna let you know, yeah. Bob? Yeah, in the VFR world, the only guidance I've ever found, and I'm going to cite Rod Machado on this one, because that's where I got it, is in the is in the aim. And if an altimeter is varies by more than 75 feet from the reported al altimeter at the airport, it's considered unreliable. That's it. Yeah, and it just says, you know, if in the instrument flying handbook, Bob is actually where that's located at. Because that's all, that's one of my favorite double I questions is, oh my goodness, we hop in the airplane and the altimeter is a hundred foot off, can we still do an IFR flight? Everybody's like, no, we can't. Absolutely, you can. You know, there's nothing that says that we can't. The only thing in the instrument flying handbook is that we would note it. It's just recommended to be within 75 feet. Now, obviously, is it a good idea to do an IFR cross-country with their altimeter off? No, well, that's up to you to decide as the PIC. Um, but, no, you can absolutely fly when it's off. So that's going beyond the acronyms and learning this out of the regulations. So 
And of course, we have our A tomato flames, comes out of 91205. That's the thing I want to see the applicants and my students do is go right to the regulations if they don't understand it. 91205. So this will list all of the stuff, you know, and we have, uh, I think it's, uh, we have an additional A for A tomato flames for the anti-collision light. So some students will think that the anti-collision is required. It's only, if we read the regulations, it's only required for aircraft that have been outfitted or certified after March 11th, 1996. So if your airplane is older than that, you definitely don't need an anti-collision light during daytime operations. You know, the E in tomato flames is ELT. Is an ELT required? What if the ELT battery is expired? Can we still go flying? Yeah. All we have to do is read the regulations. So the ELT says an emergency locator transmitter if required by 91207. And we read 91207 and it gives us um, various things that we can actually fly with that altimeter um, uh, out of inspection or when the battery has been expired. So, yeah, absolutely. For those of you that are teaching well, teaching any pilot, but especially in UCFIs, that 91207 is my favorite one to teach the structure of the, of the regs because every one of those semicolons is in 91207F is an, is an or statement. This or that or that or that. So look at the rules of construction in, the, in section in chapter 1 and then apply that to 91207, you'll find that every one of those, as I said, every one of those semicolons is an OR statement. Yep. Then we have our logbook endorsement. So, um, pretty much, when do we show our students a logbook? The day of the check ride, right before the examiner comes in? Maybe the day before? Let's try showing them a little bit earlier so that way they can understand that. You know, maybe if the airplane is down for its 100-hour or its annual inspection, let's go down to the shop. Let's just take a look at the logbook since we're doing a ground session. It's an awesome ground section that a lot of flight instructors don't do until the very last minute. It's like, okay, student, come over here. The examiner's going to be here in 30 minutes. All right, so what I did is I post-note every single one of these things. Just go right to them. That should make the examiner happy. It's a great bad weather day lesson. Yeah. Yep. You know, and on here, too, you know, um, that when going off the ELT is kind of like what Bob is saying, you know, wh when do we need to, to change the ELT battery or when does the ELT battery do? All right. We, we know this. It's right out of the regs. It says one hour cumulative use or 50% of its useful life. Then I always ask, well, when's 50% of its useful life? What date is that? It's written right here. This is just, uh, I just took this one off the internet. It says ELT battery, the expiration date's 11, 2017. Obviously, it's expired, but that's kind of when its useful life is. It's not necessarily 50% of its useful life. Depending on what kind of ELT, some are operated off of D-cell batteries. Some of them have rechargeable batteries. Some of them have a self-contained battery. We, we need to make sure that the students, you know, not just saying this 50% of its useful life, that we know that the ELT does expire, and we need to make sure that it is um, uh, current if we're flying in various operations that require an ELT. So that's what I have for that one. <laughs> so uh, I think a great thing to do to help students, there's a lot of great rules of thumb out there. 
I am not very good with rules of thumb because I, I have two thumbs, and invariably I'll use the wrong one. But there are some very good ones, and I think if you can hone those down, create your own. I mean, who here knows some good rules of thumb that we use to teach our students, right? I mean, we all have tons of them. And you probably know many of them, but I, rather than teach you or discuss all the ones that I have because we don't have time for that. I'll throw a couple examples out there, but these are the kinds of things that really help students uh, back up. In fact, before they even take their written, when we talk about density altitude, I'll give them, you know, 60 degrees for every uh, degree of Fahrenheit above standard. Add that to your field elevation. And, and that's a great little rule of thumb because they can back up the answer when they look at the charts. They can back up the answer when they put input into a, an app on their phone or, or iPad. And it also helps them understand what's happening. It's a good, it gets you close. It's not exact, but it gets you pretty close. And that's one that I like. Another one is crosswind component. I teach the 579 rule, and I actually charge them $5.79 for it, so they never forget this rule. Anybody hear this? It's really cool because basically you want to know your crosswind component. And this is what I put in their, in their solo limitations, as Andy was talking about, is that I don't ever want you taking off with more than a 10-knot crosswind component. How do I know my crosswind component? Well, take the cardinal angles. You got, if it's right down the runway at 20 knots, we know your crosswind component is zero. If it's 90 degrees to the runway, you know your crosswind component is 20. Okay, a 20 knot wind at 90 degrees to the runway. What we don't know is the ones in between, but there are some cardinal points at 30, 45, and 60. At those points, it's 50%, 70%, and 90% of the wind is going to be crosswind component. And everybody, because we know trigonometry and the sine of, uh, you know, 30 degrees is 0.5, and the sine of, if you do the math on it, it's all trigonometry stuff. And I don't like to get into that because who does trig while they're flying? Some of you do. Good for you. I can't do it. So 30 degrees off the runway, a 20-knot wind, half of it is crosswind component, so 0.5. Uh, uh, at 45 degrees off the runway, 70% of the wind speed is crosswind component. And at 60 degrees off the runway, 90% of the wind speed is crosswind component. And it's just a simple rule of thumb that works pretty well. My students can usually figure out, round it up to the higher angle, and then just use one of these. Uh, but generally you hear, you know, tw so 20 knot wind at 60 degrees off the runway is going to be... Uh, uh, 90% of 20, I can't do that in my head, 18 knots, I just did that in my head. Anyway, great rule of thumb, I like that one as well. And then the descent angle for a normal descent, three miles for every thousand feet, the three to one thing is a great rule. Not only does that work great in high performance airplanes, but it can help for descent planning for how, how long is it going to take me to get down if I want to do a normal three degree glide path, another great rule of thumb. And you guys, if we could go around the room and had time to do it, I'm sure you guys have some awesome rules of thumb that, uh, that we could use. Also, this has nothing to do with rules of thumb, but I'm throwing it in there. Be generous with your ground instruction time. Too many instructors are very eager to go flying and, and uh, you know, you go, you know, rush through the briefing. Uh, the briefing is huge. Take some time to be thorough about the briefing and also add, you know, what you're going to do, who's going to be flying the airplane, how you're going to start out. Uh, I, I've, I remember being apprehensive about this, and I have students who come to me and say, I really like that I'm going out to the airplane knowing what we're going to do. Where some students go out to the airplane, and they have no idea until the, the commander starts telling them, do this, do that. 
they don't even know what practice area they're going to. Brief all of that ahead of time. And then obviously some what ifs for things that just need to be planned ahead. Uh, like what if the engine fails immediately after takeoff? What are you going to do? Uh, who's going to fly in an emergency? I mean, you get a private pilot, two private pilots flying together. That should be established ahead of time. Get a briefing and talk about, okay, who's going to handle it if something goes wrong? Okay, when you ride the flight controls as a flight instructor, you're exhibiting to the, to the student or the other pilot that you are insecure. Okay, anybody who does that, it's a pet peeve of mine. When I went for a checkout one time, I'm on a layover somewhere, and I wanted to rent an airplane and fly around, and the flight instructor was right there on the controls with me, and I said, okay, you have the aircraft. And he says, okay, I have the aircraft. And I said, okay, you have the aircraft, because that's what we do, right? And anyway... I, he's just flying along, and I was just waiting for him to ask why I gave him the airplane. <laughs> and, and I said, it felt like you wanted to fly, because you were on the flight controls, and I don't want two of us doing that. And he was a new instructor, and I'm just like, it's just not cool to ride the flight controls. Everybody knows it. You guys know it. That's just another one that I throw out there. I'll have some more tips and trips for, for number 10 when we get to that one, but for now... All right. So talking about a mentor, that's going to be my last topic here. So having a mentor is a very, very important. And I, I didn't know this when I was a brand new CFI. So I was 21 years old when I was uh, just got my flight instructor certificate. And I thought I knew everything, you know, because uh, I actually took my check ride with the FAA, you know. So they passed me, so I thought I knew everything. But... You know, there's so many things, uh, you know, every, every day, you know, I'm still learning as a CFI uh, myself and having a mentor is going to be huge. So if you are a brand new flight instructor, I would encourage you guys to reach out to probably the best examiners are going to be a chief flight instructor at your school or a designated examiner that you can just talk to. Um, ask questions all the time. You know, my student isn't figuring out landings. You know, what are some things that you can do? So the, the experienced um, CFIs like our 50-year CFI over there probably will have lots of stories, lots of ideas, lots of tips and tricks to help our students. And then for those flight instructors who have been doing it for a while, try to go to the um, flight schools. Try to talk to the brand new flight instructors. Help them out. Sometimes they're going to be too scared to talk to you because you have a lot more experience than them. So don't be afraid to help out the younger generation. Also, you know, mentoring, that's the name of uh, the, this organization's magazine is the Mentor Magazine. I mean, that has great articles written for flight instructors to help us out during our flight training. So if you're not a member, I highly encourage it. You know, I look forward to every single issue that comes out, has amazing articles that I've helped and, uh, with, my, with my students out or have learned quite a bit with it. So having a mentor is going to be very important. Remember, you're not alone as a flight instructor. There's a lot of us that are active flight instructors, and, you know, reach out if you can. So that's my last point. A great quote on this next one. I like that. <clears throat> Yeah, no, I like it. I think that's, what I, that's my last slide I should have showed. <laughs> so lastly, I just want to go over some tips and tricks that, that uh, <clears throat> are good for, for all CFIs. And like I said, if we could go around the room, I'm sure I would learn from every one of you as well. But you don't have the microphone, and we do. So we'll go over the ones that I have. So one, don't ever trust your best student. 
<laughs> I see some head nods. I, I've gotten a little bit too comfortable with a student of mine. I shouldn't call it a student of mine. It was actually somebody I was giving a flight review to, and this were his logbooks right there. Okay, that's uh, uh, He shares my last name, and I was giving him a flight review. And I got a little bit too comfortable with him, and uh, I'm not going to say what happened. I'm just going to tell you, the airplane is a cash drawer, and it's all your money's in it. Keep an eye on the cash drawer at all times. Don't ever get complacent just because somebody has experience. Another one I like to do is I have the students pull the airplane out from its parking spot every time. That way you can inspect the full 360 degrees of each tire. That's not the reason we do it. My students do that without knowing that when they pull the airplane out, they're preventing themselves from the embarrassment of ever trying to taxi with the tail tied down or the wings tied down or a chalk in place, but this solves that problem. Uh, so I, I, yes, I care about the tread on the tires, but it, it serves a dual purpose. I also play another game called the run-up game. And when we're in the run-up pad, I say, okay, what I want you to do is uh, I want you to set 1,700 RPM, but I don't want you to look at the tachometer. I'm going to cover it. In fact, look out the window. Just look out the window and try to see if you can find 1,700 RPM. You're going to learn really where to put the throttle to get that. You're going to learn what that sounds like. You're going to learn the airplane really well. I don't care about them learning the airplane really well. That's not what that one's about either. My trick here is that I want them looking out the window when they're adding power in the run-up area. As an instructor, every time we start to do the run-up, I'm my, I'm my eyes out. We all get tempted to look at the tachometer. You want to see that they set 1,700. They want to see that they set 1,700. And what were you both doing when you taxied into that other airplane? We were staring at the tachometer. So there's no need to look at it right away. Make sure the airplane is not rolling when you start the run-up. I, I can't stress this enough, and you guys are seeing it now, right? Try to spend a few seconds at a time on your heads-down devices. Do something. Get back out the window. I recently served as an expert witness testifying in a, in a mid-air collision case. And it was, it was horrific. But it really woke me up to making an emphasis of this. Get out the window. Your prime objective is to not hit anything. So don't do any of this while you're taxiing. If you're in the air, do a couple steps. Get back out the window. Do a full scan. Do a couple more steps. Nothing is in such a hurry that two instructors need to sit, or an instructor and, a, and the pilot, learner, student, whatever, both of you, heads down looking at one of these for an extended period of time are asking for it. Another fun thing to do that you just don't see many people do is you fly in a 172, you teach someone to fly, they're light, well, if they're with me, they're not light, but the two of you together might be a light airplane, and the first time they ever fly with four people in a 172, it flies differently, Right? Or whatever kind of airplane you fly handles differently. The speeds are different. The glide speed might be different. The f landing characteristics, everything. So take an opportunity to, to say, bring a couple friends. Let's load up the airplane or get some ballast. Fly it heavy and show what it's like. <laughs> Enough said. Anybody in here have a little diamond on their forehead? <laughs> it's still <laughs> That's my yeah. Wear a hat. Always wear a hat. But I, I teach my students to always put their hand on that when they're walking around it. It's, it's, uh, it's horrible to watch somebody walk into one of those. Another thing is to match, to, for maximum lift, the aileron, put it all the way down and max, match the position with the flaps. There's a full down aileron. There's the flap matching that position. That's generally your best lift position for the flaps, generally. 
most airplanes. <clears throat> Another technique I use, what are we, how are we doing on time? My, my watch stopped. I'm on Oshkosh time. <laughs> You're about, about two minutes. Two minutes? Two minutes. Oh, I got like two hours worth of stuff left. Okay, so unusual attitudes. How many of you say, okay, put your head down, give me the airplane, and then you, you jostle them around, change the trim, move the power, mess around with them, and then say, okay, your aircraft, grab it and look up and recover. Who does that? Somebody did this with me once a long, long time ago, and this is one of those things I took away from flying with another instructor. I absolutely loved it because it taught me something else. He says, just, I just want you to maintain level, straight and level flight with your eyes closed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just flying with my eyes closed. It is the most messed up feeling in the world. Because you think, oh, what's going on? You think you might have it. You don't know what's happening. To so have the, the student fly with their eyes closed and just maintain straight and level flight, they're going to get into their own unusual attitude. Rest assured. If it's taking too long, just say, okay, give me a 30-degree bank to the right. At, at the end of the lesson. Good suggestion. He says do it at the end of the lesson because some people get airsick. And I always do unusual attitudes, steep turns, stuff like that toward the end of the lesson. That's a great idea, absolutely. Uh, but what it teaches you is that you cannot fly by the seat of your pants. That's the second lesson that's a bonus from that little trick. I thought that was absolutely wonderful. Plus, they're the ones getting into it, and, and rather than you just messing up the airplane. And I think that in and of itself is a lesson. Anybody who's seen me speak before knows that I profess this, and I try to sneak it into every seminar that I ever do, is that we have two speeds at which we can operate. We can choose one of those two speeds, slow and deliberate or screw up. Those are the two speeds. There's never a reason to rush in aviation. <laughs>